Psalm chapter 130 is where we're going to be this evening. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me. And if you don't, feel free to listen along. There are some Bibles on the uh, back of the pews there uh, in front of you. Psalm chapter 130. And I'm going to talk to you about the idea of redemption. One of my favorite stores growing up in North Little Rock was a place called Service Merchandise. Anybody remember Service Merchandise? I'm sure there were some other stores like it, but that was that was unique experience for me. Did, did you just say you got an engagement? Oh, there we go. A year late. Well, you know, you gave them the ticket and they just took a year for them to find it in the back, right? No, here's, a, here's why I like service merchandise so much. In one side of the service merchandise store in North Little Rock where I grew up was all of the boring stuff, like the furniture, you know, and the household goods and items. And we would have to walk through there with Mom and Pap, and if we were really lucky, with Mama and Paul. And Mama liked to read everything in the world. She didn't want to buy it. She just wanted to read about it, you know. So we'd go through there, and at Service Merchandise, if you're like Trevor and you didn't get to experience the goodness of Service Merchandise, what you would do is not get your item off the shelf and put it in your basket. You would just pull the ticket out. And then you would take it up to the service counter, and you would redeem the merchandise, right? So you would give them a ticket for the item that you wanted to purchase, and then you would buy it, and they would go look in their little warehouse in the back, they would bring it up in the front, and you'd leave with it. But here's the deal that my parents had made with us. If, and this was only in service merchandise, it didn't happen at Target, it didn't happen at Walmart, it didn't happen at the mall, but at service merchandise, if we could behave ourselves while we walked through the boring aisles, then we could go to the fun side of the store. And if we were really good, or probably if Pat had a few extra dollars, we could get a toy. Hot Wheels cars were the favorite, or some Legos, something like that. And I just remember service merchandise because it was right next to Toys R Us. And so we would try to go to Toys R Us afterwards too. But Toys R Us and the other stores were nothing like service merchandise because it was only this place, at least that I was familiar with growing up, where you didn't get the item off of the shelf, you took a ticket for the item, and you went to the counter to redeem the ticket, to purchase the item. So this idea of redemption in Scripture is kind of, kind of similar. And uh, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 130 tonight as we think about the idea of redemption. And what I believe the psalmist wants us to see in this song is that God promises abundant redemption from all of our iniquities. God promises abundant redemption from all of our iniquities. Psalm chapter 130, let me read you verses 1 through 8. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. God, we pray that you would bless our time as we study your word tonight. Help us to know how much you love us and the great redemption that you have provided us with through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I want you to know, and I believe the psalmist wanted you to know, that God promises abundant redemption from all of our iniquities. Really, this psalm builds up to verses 7 and 8. If you think about the last song that we, that we sung together, sang together tonight, whatever the past tense of that verb should be, uh, if you think about that, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God, oh, praise His name forevermore, there came a point in that song when we built up to a climax, right? The volume continued to gain until we sang at the top of our lungs. This is the same kind of idea that takes place in this psalm. It's building to a climax, to a point. And that climax is verses 7 through 8 that talk about the abundant redemption that God gives to us. The verses leading up to that point show us how God promises abundant redemption from all of our iniquities. So I want you to look at these three promises with me in verses 1, one through 6. First, God promises to listen to our prayers. Verses 1 and 2, God promises to listen to our prayers. If there's going to be redemption that takes place, then somebody has to cry out for that redemption, right? Um, when, you, when you wanted to purchase something at service merchandise, you didn't just walk up to the counter and say, hey, I want this. You had to give them the ticket so that they would know what to pull off of the shelves in the back. Prayer is when we come to God and cry out to Him in our need for redemption. And it's not something that should be taken lightly. Really, this, verse, this psalm doesn't start off on a high note, but a very low one. A somber one, a serious one, a sad and sorrowful one. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. This psalmist is in anguish over something. Again, he reissues the same, the same words he's spoken before. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. He's asking God to hear him when he prays. And what we need, if we're going to have redemption, is for God to hear us ask for it. And God doesn't turn his ear from us. He's not deaf so that he can't hear us. And he doesn't choose to listen to someone else. He chooses to hear us when we call upon him in prayer. And when we pray, we're praying to a God who hears us. We need to know that. It's not just that we're going through self-help therapy, saying out loud things that are troubling us and bothering us. It's that we're speaking with a living God who is able to respond and meet our need for redemption. One commentator said this, self-help may be useful in the shallows of self-pity. You know, you've got to talk to yourself and motivate yourself to get something done. But it is no answer to the depths of distress and despair. This person is down in the depths. 
They are desperate. And they need, we need, when we reach that point in our lives, to cry out to God in prayer. Maybe you'll remember the words of this old hymn. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Everything includes our sin. And our need for forgiveness and redemption. I mean... Have you ever gotten to the point that you know you need to ask God forgiveness for something you've done or you've said, but you've had this little thought in the back of your mind that goes, oh, Jake, you sure you want to talk to God about that? But here's the ironic thing. He already knows anyway. I mean, isn't that just crazy and bizarre? It's kind of like when, when uh, you've got little children in your household and one of them is lying to your face about something, and you know what they've done, and you know that they're lying about it, but you want them to come clean and just confess the truth. This is really one of the chief reasons why God wants us to pray to Him. He wants us to get things out in the open. He already has seen. He has already heard. He already knows. And He promises to listen to our prayers. We shouldn't forfeit the peace of redemption because we think we can hide our sin from God. That was what Adam and Eve tried to do in the Garden of Eden. Did it work? No. That was what David tried to do at first when he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Did it work? No. It never works. But what does work is God's plan of redemption. And it begins when we are willing to bring our sin before Him and confess it openly. God promises to listen to our prayers, verses 1 and 2. And then redemption continues with this promise. God not only promises to listen to our prayers, He also promises to let go of our iniquities, verses 3 and 4. He promises to let go of our iniquities. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, then who could stand? Mark. This kind of has the idea of the tally marks you used to make when you were counting something. You guys remember tally marks? You write four of them, then when you get to five, you put a slash through it, and then you keep counting, and so you can tally something up, you can add it all together. The psalmist says, God, if, if you were in heaven watching the wrong that we did, and you were marking our iniquities, there is not a person who could stand. Because nobody's perfect, and because there are so many marks, we would be absolutely embarrassed and ashamed to even come before you. But the psalmist says that there is something God does that's different. He doesn't mark iniquities. Rather, there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. There is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. This word forgiveness means to take something and let it go. You see, with God, He doesn't just overlook our sin and act like it's not a big deal. He takes hold of us and stares us in the face and weighs out the full value of what we've done and then says, I love you enough to let this mistake and this intentional wrong and even you who have done this wrong go free. That's wonderful to think about, isn't it? 
In fact, the Greek verb in the New Testament that's used for forgive is the same verb that's used for let go. Just as a physical action to let go of something. This is what God does with our sin. It's not just that he overlooks it. It's that he takes hold of it and lets it go. He chooses willingly to forgive us. I've got a little illustration that may help out. Talked about soccer today, but anybody ever played dodgeball before growing up? I don't know if they play dodgeball much much anymore in schools because, you know, you can't pick on the, the little kids and you got bullies. And, anyway, but I like dodgeball, like so much so that I've, I'm ready to just throw this right at Trevor's face, but I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. But uh, um, there's been times here at the church when, uh, when this blessed brother of mine named Sean Corder would put out a hit on me with a dodgeball. And he would tell the teenagers, like, he really did this, he'd tell the teenagers, first person to hit Jake gets an energy drink, I'll, I'll hook you up. First person to hit Jake gets this, whatever. I'd come through the gym, and man, one of those big guys, I'm not going to do it, I promise. One of those big guys would just, I wouldn't even see it coming. It just whacked me upside the head, and I would think, Ugh. you know what I would do? I would go over, and I mean, because it catches you off guard, and it hurts a little bit, right? And I would pick up that dodgeball, and I would want so bad to just turn around and smoke the person that had hit me in the side of the head with that dodgeball. And then I thought, you know, I probably better not do that, because you might not have a pastor anymore if I did that. And then I thought, you know, I probably need to forgive this person, and I probably need to forgive Sean for putting a hit out on me. No? Steve said I could smoke him. That's the associate pastor's word. Sean's getting a dodgeball to the side of the head. He comes back. So, no, here's what I would do. I'd take that dodgeball, and in order to not act out in anger or respond in frustration, you know what I'd have to do? No, I would, I would not hit Sean on the head. That would just perpetuate the cycle. What would I have to do? I'd just have to let it go. Right? Um... And sometimes it would help in my head if I would sing Elsa's song from Frozen and, you know, let it go. But I would, I would just, I'd have to let it go. And spiritually, this is what God does with our iniquities. Our sin hurts and grieves God. And it's not so much that he's blindsided by it, as it just is this full-on frontal assault directly in his face. He's created us, and he loves us, and he has a good purpose and plan for our lives. And when we sin and do wrong against him, it just gets him right in the gut. And he takes that sin, and he looks it over, and he looks at us, and then he chooses to simply let it go. And what that does is it establishes a relationship of trust in Him. Because there is forgiveness with God, we choose to fear Him. It's a reverence or respect for God. I kind of explain that fear, that reverence like this. Especially in the summertime, when my brother and I were at home and school wasn't in session... And mom, mom was a stay-at-home mom, so she took care of the house, and she tried her best to take care of us. And, uh, but there, there were times just about every day that my brother and I would get in a fight. And the days that we got into numerous fights and continued to disobey her, it was, 
Boys, just wait till your dad comes home, right? And when dad got home, there was an absolute fear and terror that we were about to get whooped with the belt because we had fought throughout the day and continually disobeyed mom. And usually that's what happened. And we deserved it, no doubt. Our father loved us enough to discipline us and to punish us for the wrong that we had, we had done. But after he would discipline us and punish us, we weren't afraid to come around him again. It's not like we were afraid to walk past him because he was going to hit us for no reason. We feared him. We respected him enough to listen to him. And so, you know, after he would spank me and then he'd spank my brother and I'd cry more because my brother was getting spanked and I felt bad about getting in a fight with him and making him get a, you know, causing him to get a spanking. He would sometimes sit us down, sometimes let us go to our rooms, but we'd usually have this point where the relationship had to be restored. He would either ask us, boys, why did I have to come home and, and give you a spanking today? And we'd tell him. Or we'd feel so bad that we'd come out of our rooms later or just turn around right after he'd spanked us and say, Dad, I, or Pap is what we call my dad, Pap, I'm sorry. And we have to tell Mama, I'm sorry. And once that happened, we had a stronger relationship with our parents. We feared them and respected them. We wanted to listen to them. We wanted to please them because they loved us. And we wanted to love them in return. And this is what happens when we confess our sin to God in prayer. And when God lets go of our iniquities. A relationship of redemption is established. So God promises to listen to our prayers. He promises to let go of our iniquities. Verses 3 and 4 but then we also see that God promises to lift up our souls. Verses 5 and 6. God promises to lift up our souls. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in His word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. It is the Lord Himself not simply escape from punishment that the writer of this psalm longs for. The times that I got in trouble when I was little and I knew when I had hurt and upset my parents and when I came to them and asked them for forgiveness, it wasn't just that I didn't want to get a spanking or that I wanted to be out of trouble. It's that I knew there was something wrong in our relationship because I had done something wrong. But every time I would come to them, even after they had punished me, they would forgive. And it was like my soul was just uplifted. You know what I'm talking about? You ever seen the, the old black and white shows before? Maybe when Opie comes up to Sheriff Andy and he's kind of kicking the dirt and he's hanging his head in shame a little bit. And he tells his dad what he's done. And Andy Griffith responds with infinite wisdom that was written down by you know, whoever made the TV show. And then here's what happens. You know, Opie would just kind of lift up his little head and those big old ears would be matched up with that big smile across his face. Is it because he was proud that he had done wrong? No. It was because he was so thankful that his father had forgiven him. When we come to God and confess our sin, He lets go of our iniquities and He lifts up our souls. He restores relationships. The, uh, the idea of waiting, the idea of hope is, uh, is put here throughout verses 5 and 6 with the uh, 
illustration of the night watchman. Uh, we, we don't really have this same concept in our day and time. Maybe we could talk about that in a military setting um, where there's a military camp established. But in this day and time, the idea and the job of a watchman was prevalent throughout their society. And it's because all of their cities were built inside of walls, right? So you'd have a wall all the way around the city and you'd have gates at different points in these walls so that people could access the city. So they could come in and go out as they needed to. Well, at night, in order to keep everyone inside the city safe and to deter enemies um, and keep them from attacking their folks, they would shut the gates. They would have folks waiting at the gates in case somebody needed in or out. But they would have stationed in towers along the wall watchmen. And they would wait and they would watch all night. And you've seen some of the, the old school war movies before. If there's a threat, they'd light this big beacon and then everybody lights their beacons on the wall and they know they need to defend themselves and prepare. Well, the night watchman had a very difficult job. And it was probably scary at times for some of these watchmen. They had a difficult job because they had to stay up all night long. And they had to stay awake. They couldn't fall asleep. Or they would get in some pretty serious trouble. And even worse than that, if they fell asleep and they didn't fulfill their job, the people inside the city that they were protecting, their family and friends, could possibly be harmed. Their job was difficult, but their job might have also been scary in certain situations because sometimes these cities had very real enemies who wanted to do them some very real harm. And on those nights, they didn't have a problem staying awake. They were just kind of shaking, thinking, man, how did I get stuck on the rotation this week? And the one thing that a night watchman would long for and expect was not an enemy attack, was not something crazy to happen, but it was something that they knew was going to happen after every long night that they spent in those towers. It was the dawn, the morning, when the sun would come up. In this passage, the writer says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. When the morning came, the watchman's job was done. It was over. They could lay down and rest. They no longer had to worry or fret. The morning had come. They could see around them. The psalmist repeats himself to emphasize this idea. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning does my soul wait for the Lord. The night at many times in our lives may seem endless, but morning is certain and its time is determined. I'll be very honest with you. There are some times that we do things in life... And these things grieve God and they hurt the others around us so much so that even though we've brought this sin before God and prayed and asked for forgiveness and we know in our hearts that God has let that iniquity go, we still have to deal with the ramifications of sin. We do. And it's not that God doesn't love us or that God doesn't want to forgive us. It's just that the consequences of our sin are so serious that we have to continue living down the path we have chosen to walk. 
But God promises to lift up our souls. And even if that lifting up is not instantaneous or immediate or it takes longer than we think it should, there is a day coming when Jesus returns and the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. The light of the world comes and sets everything right and He makes all things new. He restores and He brings ultimate redemption with Him. And it is that day that we long for. It's that light of the world who is coming to lift up our souls as He brings His ultimate redemption. I think C.S. Lewis worded it well when he talked about the hope that we have in Jesus and the, the, His return that we long for. When he said this, I believe in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as I believe in the rising sun. Not because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And that is redemption. We know that Jesus is returning. We know that the light of the world is coming back. And we wait until that day. If we have already been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, all we're waiting for Him to do is return to this earth and claim us and take us home to be with Him. So you, you think about it like this. At, at service merchandise, you would take the ticket to the counter, and while they were going to the back to find the item that you wanted to purchase, you would go ahead and you would pay for that item. Everybody familiar with this practice? So by the time that folks in the warehouse had brought out the merchandise, you had already paid for it. It was bought. It was paid in full. Jesus Christ has already purchased our redemption. We are bought for. We are paid in full. When he died on the cross and his blood was shed for our sins, he cried out, it is finished. When he returns one day, we see the product of his finished work. That is the day that we, his people, redeemed by the blood that was shed for our sins, lift up our hands and worship towards him for all of eternity. It's the day when our souls are lifted. It's the day when we experience the grace and freedom of God in all of its fullness. And we realize what the Apostle Paul was writing about in Romans when he said, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. The psalmist challenged Israel to look forward in the future to what the Christ would bring. His forgiveness and his redemption. And though the psalmist might not have understood that a man named Jesus from Nazareth was going to have to die on a Roman cross to pay for the sins of the world, he knew that God was willing and able to redeem mankind from their sins. We as Christians look backward at the day that Christ died for our sins and we also look forward to the day of his return. God promises abundant redemption from all of our iniquities. And he's able to do so because Jesus has already bought and paid for us. And he is coming back to get us. We are his. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father God, we come to you tonight. 
And God, as we think about this concept of redemption, help us to realize and understand the abundant redemption from all of our iniquities that you provided us through your son Jesus. His blood that was shed for us covers our sins when we believe in him and when we confess wrong to him. And God, there is a day when he is coming back to take us to be with him forever and eternity where there will no longer be any sin but where we will worship him and you, our good father in reverence and adoration for eternity. So God, help us here and now to remember the promises that you give to us that you listen to our prayers that you, left, that, that you let go of our iniquities and that you lift up our souls. God, we thank you for the redemption that you offer us in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.